Thank you, Joel. It's a great honor to be here today. I think very highly of your pastor. I know quite a few pastors in this region from my role at Lancaster Bible College, and your pastor is one of the men I admire the most, probably because I'm a Baptist and there aren't many Baptists around here, but so I appreciate that. Uh, the only complaint about I, this church I have is the leg room. I mean, those pews are killer. <laughs> you might know my son-in-law, Luke, who's taller than me, and I don't know how he sits in that. Maybe he sits in the aisle, but uh, as Joel mentioned, our daughter, Kelsey, just had a little girl three weeks ago, and our other daughter, Kate, who's a teacher and a pastor's wife up in Clearfield, uh, Pennsylvania, up above State College, just had her second boy five weeks ago, so we are in the midst of all the joys of grandparenting, which is that if you raise your kids, you can spoil your grandkids. If you spoil your kids, you'll raise your grandkids. So (laughs) we're thankful that we're able to spoil our grandkids. So my wife, Adrian, is with me, and then also my son, Ryan, who's our youngest, and his fiancee, Andy, and they're getting married in a few months in June, and uh, so we rejoice with them. And then we are empty nesters. Oh, it's going to be so great. Any other empty nesters in here? So much fun. It's like being newly married, but now you have money. Like, <laughs> so there's lots of good things that you can do. So it is, it is an honor and pleasure to be with you today. Um, also want to mention my friendship with Jeff Mindler. Uh, we have coffee several times a year, and sometimes I can get Jeff in when he's not too busy to lecture in my classes, so I'm thankful for him. And then uh, Mandy, Aaron, your last name, Eckhart? Krauss, sorry, way off. Okay, so Mandy White, now Mandy Krauss, was one of my first students in apologetics when I started teaching the class at Lancaster Bible College about five years ago. And it was two girls in the class and about 20-something guys, and the two girls were the boldest. They went to the local atheist group, and they attended it, and at first the atheists were like, ooh, here's a couple Bible college students, we're going to shake their faith. And by the end of the night, the atheists were shaken. And Mandy was one of those. And when they came back the next time, they weren't so welcome because they weren't easy prey as they had expected. So thankful that uh, Mandy is here and and, uh, still growing. So she's your resident expert in apologetics. Well, Jeff too, but, you know, uh, I'm thankful for Jeff. He's He's a good friend. So I want to talk this morning about apologetics from 1 Peter chapter 3, what it is, why every Christian should be concerned to know what it is and to be involved in the practice of it. Uh, Because in this passage, we see that God calls every Christian, not just pastors, not just professors, to be able to skilled in and regularly practicing, defending their faith and sharing it effectively. That's what apologetics is all about. And I want to start with a a parable, a parable that's been around for a long time. It's called the parable of the life-saving station. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there once was a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews trained and the little life-saving station grew. 
Some members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a miniature lifeboat uh, in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station further down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. When you ask what's going on in the American church when it comes to evangelism, I think there's nothing more uh, appropriate in a picture as that parable. Uh, when I came to Christ as a nine-year-old boy in the 70s, I know the, the young people are like, 70s? Oh, let's take a picture of that guy. He's ancient. He's from the previous millennium. Yes, the 1970s, my parents came to Christ. My wife's parents came to Christ. We were not born into Christian homes. And all I remember in those early days uh, with our pastor, who was a Dallas seminary grad, who, 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 un, under whose preaching my parents grew exponentially, was that almost every Sunday there were testimonies given of people coming to Christ and saved out of all kinds of lifestyles. And it was exciting because there were new believers coming in constantly. There were Bible studies. There were um, uh, discipleship programs going on because so many people were coming to Christ. Now, the world has changed since the 1970s, in case you didn't notice. Many of those changes are good changes, but I've noticed through the years that when it comes to evangelism, very few churches have an organized, intentional, and effective way of reaching the lost anymore. I grew up in independent Baptist circles in West Hartford, Connecticut, where I went to church. I grew up out in the woods further in western Connecticut. And from an early age, we were taught about evangelism. So I was part of my church's SWAT team. Not that kind of SWAT team. Soul-winning active teens. So every Wednesday after school, we would go out on the streets of West Hartford, Connecticut, a very wealthy area, and we would pass out gospel tracts, and we would give the gospel burp. Have you heard the gospel burp before? It goes something like this. 
Excuse me, sir. Do you know for sure if you die today, you go to heaven? Can I tell you God loves you? If you fall into sin, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. If you just believe in him, you can be saved. And it's the gospel bird because you feel better and that person's offended. <laughs> that is, you have read a script, you have monologued to someone, and our goal was to get it all out before they cut you off. And hopefully right then and there with that little 30-second gospel presentation, they would bow their heads and be saved. And by this time in the 1980s, that was not happening that often anymore, partly because the method was not that great. What I have since noticed in the last 10 to 15, 20 years is that churches that intentionally for generations had some method of reaching out to the lost have for the most part abandoned it. Now in the 70s, it was effective to go knocking on doors. And so every Thursday night was visitation night. And you'd go knock on doors and people would open the door and they would talk to you. And sometimes people would come to Christ right then and there. But as time went on and our society changed, we had to change methods in order to be more effective. But mostly what I find today is churches just hope that somehow people will be saved. Or will they have big events to draw the unbelievers to the church property, which is not bad, but for many churches that's all that's left of their evangelism program. So we just hope unbelievers will come. So some churches have chosen the path, let's make church as attractive as possible. Let's make it as indistinctly Christian as possible so they hardly even know that they're at a church. You're aware of this. There's a lot of different ways we can try to bring people, but strangely, when you go back to Matthew 28, where Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go and tell, go and make disciples. What I'd like to present this morning from 1 Peter 3 is simply a, a basic outline. If here's what God calls every one of us, every single Christian. Mark, I've only been saved 10 minutes. Yes, this includes you. I've been saved 50 years. Yes, this includes you. I'm 70 years old. I'm 17 years old. Yes, this includes you. I'm highly educated. I'm not educated at all. Yes, this includes you. So 1 Peter 3, let's begin in verse 13. Peter's writing to Christians who are undergoing persecution. And he says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I'm reading from the ESV. My apologies for the breach of protocol here, but Joel said it was okay. Now who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy or revere Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are evil spoken of, when you are lied about, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So notice here, Peter calls every one of us to a certain uh, preparation, a certain activity. And can you imagine, and just let me paint the picture, can you imagine if every member of Grace Baptist Church, in their each in their own spheres of influence, your neighborhood, your job, your friends, your family, if each of us was confident enough to go out and in those spheres engage people with the gospel, with the truth of Christ, as just a regular habit of life. 
where you could reach people that you couldn't reach by going door to door. And you could reach people that you're, the person sitting next to you couldn't reach because you work with these people or you're their neighbor. What if every member of Grace Baptist was thinking along those lines? Lord, help me to look each day for an opportunity to share the truth of Christ, to defend the Christian faith. I want you to notice, first of all, what Peter's talking about here is apologetics. You say, Mark, where is that in the text? That phrase, make a defense or give an answer, is the Greek word apologia from which we get apologetics. It simply means uh, to give a defense, to stand in a court of law and defend someone who's been falsely accused. A good example would be, let's say, you woke up tomorrow morning and either in your news feed or you open the newspaper and there on the front cover is Joel DeVinney's mugshot. And he's been arrested for robbing 16 banks at gunpoint in Lancaster County. Okay? Some of you are like, that would not surprise me at all, right? <laughs> <clears throat> so let's say Joel goes to court in Lancaster County Court downtown and he's accused and they give him a public defender. Nothing wrong with public defenders, but let's say his attorney stands before the judge in the first plea and says, Your Honor, this is a nice guy. I mean, he's a family man. He's a pastor. Uh, You know, he's really friendly to strangers. He stops and pets puppies, and he stops and smells the roses. He could not have done this. He's too nice of a guy. My guess is Joel would be like, no, present the evidence. I wasn't there when this, this bank was robbed, and, and this person that robbed this bank had hair. That was obviously not me. Okay? In other words, he would hope that his defense would consist of sound evidence that would clearly disprove. And what Peter then is calling us to do, each of us, in our engagement with unbelievers, is to be prepared so that when they ask us, how can you be a Christian? You seem like an intelligent person. Or how can you believe in God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? How can you believe that Christ is the only way? Don't you know there's so many religions in the world? These are the different attacks that come our way today. And Peter says, you shouldn't have to say, let me go ask my pastor. Now, that, that may happen. Peter says, you, you should be prepared to give an answer, to present an apologetic, to present a defense, so that your answer defends the truth of the Christian faith and opens up an opportunity for you to present the truth of Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, the starting point of apologetics is a settled assurance that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for every person. Notice, first of all, in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, or revere Christ the Lord as holy. Peter's writing to people who are undergoing persecution in the Roman Empire, and truthfully, Uh, The Roman Empire was quite tolerant. As they conquered people, they continued to allow them to worship whatever gods or goddesses that they already worshipped, with the exception that if you lived in the Roman Empire once a year, you had to go to the temple of the emperor and you had to offer incense and you had to say out loud, Caesar is Lord. And this is where Christians ran into trouble. The Romans were fine if they wanted to worship a crucified carpenter from Jerusalem or from Palestine. They were fine with that. But if you would not be willing to go and say, Caesar is Lord, then you're in trouble. And Peter says, you've got to start 
by determining in your heart, setting apart Christ as Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And this is why throughout 1 Peter, he talks about suffering almost constantly. Because Peter knows that if you do this, if you declare Christ as Lord and refuse to declare Caesar as Lord, you're going to suffer for it. See, defending your faith, sharing your faith effectively begins with this inner confidence. Do I truly believe that Jesus is the only way, only truth, only life for all people? And and truth is, we can be shaken in this. If you work with, for example, really nice people who are unbelievers, you'd be like, Oh, I don't know. I just like, do they really need Jesus? They seem they're they're more moral than most of the Christians at Grace Baptist Church I know. Okay, that was a joke. No. I remember each of my kids when they turned 14, they went to work at an assisted living center. We lived in the Philadelphia area at the time, and uh, they worked in the dining room, and they worked with a lot of other teenagers their age, Hindus and agnostics and others like that. I remember one of my kids coming home and saying, "Dad, how do we know?" that what we believe is true. Some of these kids I work with are nicer than my Christian friends. They treat me with more dignity. They're not backstabbing me. They're not running me down. Like, how can Christianity be true if that's the case? In fact, all three of my kids at different times in their teen years came and said, Dad, how do we know that what we believe is truth? And I smacked them and said, You're the son of an apologist. Be quiet and disbelieve. No, I didn't. I said, let's, let's work on finding an answer for that. Let's, let me show you. Here's what other belief systems offer. Here's what Christ offers. Here's the historical evidence behind Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, everything in the Christian faith hinges on the truth of the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. If that did not happen, Paul says, this is all futile. It's all a waste of time. And then Paul says, but it did happen. Therefore, we know that what we believe is true. So let me ask you a question. Are you settled in your assurance that Jesus is the truth? If not, one of the best things that you can do is to be discipled, study the scriptures. Sometimes people think, oh, if I want to do apologetics and and defend my faith, I've got to go get a master's degree in philosophy or I've got to get a degree in science. No, 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 no. The best thing that you can do to learn to defend your faith and give an answer is to know the scriptures and to know sound doctrine. There's nothing more important. Knowing a little bit of philosophy or world religion or science may help, but truthfully, if you know the scriptures and you know sound doctrine, you are ready. In my own search, because I was saved at a young age, uh, at the age of nine, and then grew up in mostly Christian circles after that, knew I wanted to be a pastor by the time I was 12. I was one of those weird kids like, yeah, I'm going to be a pastor at 12 years old. And I'm sure people are like, yeah. Yeah, right. We'll see how long that lasts. But it did. At some point when I was a pastor 20, 25 years ago in the state of Connecticut, which is a very secular, unbelieving state where no one would ever claim to be a Christian unless they really were, I began to wonder, is, is there anything that could challenge a Christian faith? So as I went back to school over the next 10 or 15 years, it took me a long time, I, I studied things like, you know, how the New Testament came about. And I studied philosophy asking, is there any objection that can be raised against the Christian faith for which we have no answer? And the answer was a resounding no. There is no challenge raised against the Christian faith. No objection by Richard Dawkins, the author of God Delusion. No challenges by scientists or philosophers to which there are not many good answers 
which point to the absolute truthfulness, the singular truthfulness of Jesus Christ. And Peter says that's where we have to start. Notice, secondly, he goes on, though, in verse 15, and he says this, always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is, confidence comes from preparation. Now, I love to camp from the time I was a kid. My dad would take us camping. I just, I just enjoyed that kind of experience, except we weren't really good campers. Like when my dad said, let's go camping, I'd say, okay, and we would start the hunt for all of our camping equipment. And we'd find the sleeping bags, you know, tucked away in the attic, never rolled up, you know, probably infested with bugs. We'd find the tent, which we had used the year before we went camping in the rain, still all folded up, and then we had to kind of like peel it apart because we never set it up and dried it out and swept it. If you're a camper right now, you're just like cringing, like, oh, how can you do that? We found the fishing rods behind the barn all rusted out. And in other words, we weren't good at preparing. And I'll never forget the first time I was camping and saw someone who really knew what they were doing. They had everything in bins. And when they were done with a camping trip, they'd spend an entire day cleaning up, drying things off, getting them ready, putting everything in the bins. When they wanted to go camping, they'd just pull all these bins out of the garage, throw them in their vehicle and go. And I thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be that kind of camper who's prepared. And the truth is, if we're going to give an answer to those who challenge our faith, who question what we believe, who say, how can you be a Christian? How can you believe in something you can't see? It takes preparation. It's not the kind of thing where you can just shoot off the hip and hope to give an answer. And folks, we live in a day and age we are, we're surrounded with the riches of apologetic material. I've, I've tabulated more than 200 good books on apologetics written over the last 20 years. 200. There's a lot of bad ones too, but 200 good ones. There are websites galore. That is, we have no excuse as Christians for not being able to defend our faith because we live with an embarrassment of riches when it comes to those things. But confidence comes from preparation. It takes time and effort and sometimes even money. Here's a radical idea. It's going to blow your mind. You're going to say, Uh, Joel, we cannot invite radicals like that in our church anymore after this. I think every Christian family, every Christian individual ought to have a growing apologetics library in their home. Oh, man, scandalous. Honestly, the average apologetics book costs about $15 to $18, and it will give you answers to the questions that are raised in our world today so that you can actually engage people, challenge them on their unbelief, and show them that Christ is the true answer. When I first began learning apologetics, it was in 2005. I went to work on my doctorate at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And I was enjoying it, but the, the homework was just mountainous. I mean, just hours and hours a day. I think each week I had about 1,500 pages of high-level apologetics material to read. I had to write digest 20-something pages a week. And so I'm drowning. I remember going to this coffee shop about two months into this 10-year doctorate. And uh, I was, yeah, that's how long it took me. Uh, <laughs> praise my wife. She is a wonderful person to endure all that. That was my fourth degree. So she, uh, she deserves, I told the rest of our lives, it's all about you, honey. But then I keep moving to places that I need to move to. Uh, but I'm sitting in this coffee shop studying, very overwhelmed, but enjoying it. 
And this woman came in. She sat down next to me. And uh, we were sitting rather close. And, and um, she began to do this. <sighs> and this went on for like five minutes. And I realized she wants to talk. And I began to have this internal debate with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I do not have time to talk to this woman right now. I am learning how to defend the faith and share the gospel with unbelievers. I'm not a fast learner, hence the 10 years. So I fought the Lord for at least five minutes. I'm like, I don't have time for this. I've got to do my homework. And finally I realized the Lord was giving me an opportunity early into the process of learning this stuff. So I closed my book. I turned to her and I said, sounds like you're having a rough day. And she said, yeah, I have a problem with my insurance company and they won't cover something I had to have done. And I listened for a little while and I I just said, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'll I'll pray for you. And her head whipped around and she said, what are you, some kind of religious nut? And I said, no, I'm a Christian and I believe God answers prayer. And then I began to do what I teach at my weekend conferences at churches. I just began to ask strategic questions. I said, why, what do you believe? And she goes, well, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, okay. You don't believe God exists? She said, that's right. And then she goes, well, come to think of it, I, I mean, maybe God exists, but who knows? I said, oh, you're an agnostic. She goes, yes, that's what I am. And then before I could say anything, she goes, well, I kind of feel like God is everywhere and in everything. I said, oh, you're a pantheist. She goes, yes, that's what I am. <laughs> and then I just began asking her questions. What, what makes you believe God is everywhere and in everything? And about 10 minutes into the conversation, a guy came in and sat down next to her, and I thought they were together. And after a little while, I said, do you know each other? And they looked at each other and said no. And the guy said, I just heard what you were talking about, and it was very interesting. And the conversation went on for almost two and a half hours. And I had never had a conversation with an unbeliever about the gospel before that lasted more than maybe 10 minutes. And the whole time inside, I'm thinking, wow, this works. I don't know these people from Adam. I'm just starting to learn this. But by asking strategic questions, by giving answers, by the little preparation I've had so far, it's powerful. And at the end of the two hours, the guy, two and a half hours, the guy stood up and he said, I don't even know what I believe anymore. Everything that I believe when I came in here, you took away from me. And I was able to share the gospel clearly, encourage them to go home and read the gospels. And that's when I began to realize what I just did any Christian could do because all I did was ask questions and begin to talk about Christ as, as they answered and their belief system crumbled very quickly. And that's the moment when I first began studying thinking, why, don't, why doesn't every Christian know about this kind of thing? But this is exactly what Peter calls us to do, to engage unbelievers, to have conversations with them about what they believe and to challenge them so that when they challenge us, we have an answer. I want you to notice something in this passage here where he says, always be prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason. That word reason is is from the Greek word that we get the term logic from. That is, it's, it's not enough just to quote a verse. Now, I do quote a verse. I think we ought to use the Bible in engaging unbelievers, whether they believe it or not. But we are to have rational reasons why we believe what we believe. And Peter says, if you will prepare yourself to give a reasonable answer, a rational answer to them about the hope that's in you, that is the belief that you have in Christ, it will be powerful. And it is powerful. 
And the question is, how many unbelievers in your life, think of someone specific right now, how many of them have you engaged with the gospel? Now, I understand the feeling of fear, like, what if they ask me something I don't know? Or I don't feel ready. I can assure you, after the last 13 or 14 years of studying this stuff, I still get butterflies in my stomach. I still get nervous. I'm still afraid they're going to ask me something I don't know. And people still ask me questions I don't know. I'm like, I ought to have the answers by now. But it's not about us. It's about the Holy Spirit's power using us. And the question is, are you willing to give time to prepare, to give an answer, and to engage unbelievers, to take the initiative to engage them? I think too many times as Christians, we look out at the world and it's really going to pot quickly and we're just going to circle the wagons and hole up in our church and just pray for Jesus to return. And we should long for the return of Christ. What I see in the American church many times is this idea that we're not going to engage because the world's too scary. Oh, no, we've got to. We've got to get in there. This is where the confidence and the power of the gospel comes in. I want you to notice thirdly how we do this. At the end of verse 15, Peter says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. When some people hear the term apologetics, they're like, Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't like to argue. That's good because it's not about arguing. And truthfully, some people who are into apologetics make it all about this arrogant argument where they're confronting people on a street corner. That's not what Peter is talking about. He says, do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, treat that person as someone made in the image of God. So don't scorn them. Don't try to embarrass them. Don't try to show that you know more. But share the truth of Christ in love with that person and do it in a way that they walk away saying, I thought that person was crazy, but I kind of like them. I disagree with what they say, but they were nice. They treated me with respect. They didn't act condescending toward me. They didn't try to get into an argument with me, but they stood their ground and they defended what they believed. That's what Peter is talking about, is our goal is not to start confrontations or win arguments or show our knowledge, but to point them to Christ. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 uses a beautiful metaphor. He says, when it comes to the gospel, he said, you want to know what I'm all about? Because people were fighting over Paul in 1 Corinthians. I was led to Christ by Paul, and Paul, he is number one. And others were like, oh, Apollos, he's a better preacher. Yeah, but Peter, he was there with Jesus. And the others, as you know, you know, I follow Jesus, none of these men. And Paul says, stop making a big deal about me and my church planting. Paul says, you know what I do? I plant seeds. All I do, Paul says, is wherever I go, I plant seeds of the truth of the gospel. Apollos, who's a better preacher comes along, he waters them by what he says, but he says it's God who gives the harvest. And I love this, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So he who plants and he who waters are nothing, but only he who can bring the harvest. Too many times when we think about engaging unbelievers, first of all, we prejudge. We look around and think, okay, who do I think will respond nicely? You know, I don't know, that, that guy, you know, he, he looks like a young millennial. You know, I don't understand millennials. And, you know, uh, or that guy's wearing a business suit or that woman looks different than me. Uh, let me find someone who looks like they would respond well. Why? Because we are trying to think it's all about us. 
When I was a pastor, I had a guy in my church uh, named Big Pete. Well, that wasn't his real name, but that's what we all called him, Big Pete. He was about six foot five, 350 pounds, former Hell's Angel motorcycle gang member. Had a big ZZ top kind of beard that went down to his waist. He was intimidating, but the gentlest soul. And I asked him, I said, Pete, who was the first person who shared the gospel with you? Because I, I take my hat off to that person because you're a scary dude. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, you know, he said, I was years in, in the drinking and the immorality and the violence and all that stuff. And he said, I was at a point where I was just broken in this little preacher came up to me and handed me a gospel track and started witnessing to me. So I got saved right then and there. Like, can you imagine prejudging? Like, no way is that guy ever going to listen. And yet he was ready. Why? Because that person, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, our job when we encounter unbelievers in our workplace, in our neighborhood, when we're on a plane or in a coffee shop, in our family, is just to plant seeds. And if they'll let you, You just keep sharing and asking questions about what they believe and uh, seeking to show how Christ is the only true answer. And the whole time you're thinking, I'm just planting seeds, and as far as God will let this go, I'll just keep going. That's all it takes because it's the Holy Spirit who saves people. And I've had conversations that last two minutes, and they cut you off, and I think, okay, but that wasn't a loss because the Lord can use that in their heart and mind. But our goal is to engage people with love and dignity, but not to forsake the importance of the gospel. That is, and here's the problem. Too many Christians think today, I'm just going to win them by being nice. You're not. There's a lot of nice people in the world. God calls us to love, which is more difficult because love confronts. Love says the truth even when niceness would refrain. Notice finally in this passage that we are called to lead an authentic life so our words are backed by action. Verse 16. He says, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That is, how can I share a message with an unbeliever that God can save them from sin when I myself am enslaved to it? How can I tell them God can free you from my sin when I'm a gossip and I'm bitter and I'm angry and I view pornography and I'm engaged in immorality and I have addictions in my life that I will not let God touch? This is another big reason why American evangelicals have stopped evangelizing is because we no longer believe in holiness and purity in our lives. And therefore, we're thinking, well, how can I tell them that they need to be saved when I myself had my own sin. Now we are always going to struggle with sin until we see Christ, but there should be a pattern of growth in our lives. But I've seen people who get all excited about apologetics when they have these glaring sin problems in their lives. And a really intelligent unbeliever is going to say, wait a, wait a second, you're telling me Jesus can save me from my sins, but I know you, I work with you, I hear what comes out of your mouth, I see how you treat other people. And Peter says, we've got to have a clear conscience, which means a regular pattern of repenting of sin, of growing in Christ. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time God convicted you of sin in your life? If it was more than just a few weeks or months ago, you may not be as close to the Lord as you think. 
you may be thinking, well, I'm not committing the big things. That's, that's how the Pharisees felt. Remember what Jesus said? You think, you think it's great that you haven't committed adultery, but I tell you, whoever looks upon a woman lusts after her and his heart has committed adultery. You congratulate yourself because you haven't murdered anyone, but you hate your brother. The regular pattern of our lives ought to be to take in the word of God through our own reading, through hearing the preaching of God's word, through the mutual exhortation in God's church, and that on a regular basis, the word of God would convict us. And we would have to say, Lord, forgive me, change me. You want to know why unbelievers often accuse Christians of hypocrisy? Because it's true. Sadly, it's true. I'm not saying every Christian's a hypocrite. But I'm saying the tendency to want to share the truth of God's word when we ourselves are not open to it and listening to the Holy Spirit makes our witness ineffectual. But the picture Peter paints here is of every Christian saying, I must take on the responsibility of preparing myself so that when I encounter an unbeliever and the opportunity arises to share my faith, that I say, all right, Lord, I'm jumping in. I'm scared, but I believe the message. I trust the power of it. So here we go. Are you at that point in your life yet? Because here's what will happen if we will all do that. If we will all say, Lord, this terrifies me, but I want to I reach the lost. I mean, I have never met a Christian that says, I don't want to reach the lost. Every Christian says, I want to reach the people around me. I just don't feel equipped or I'm afraid or I'm not sure how it will turn out. If we view our encounters with unbelievers as planting and watering seeds, and God is the one who is the power behind it, and we spend our lives whenever we get the opportunity to challenge unbelievers, to give an answer when they challenge us, to approach and take the initiative to witness to them, here's what's going to happen. We're going to get to heaven someday, and there's going to be a long line of people that are going to say, you, you shared the gospel with me 20 years before I was saved. You tried to share the gospel with me, and I shut you down, but I went home that night and couldn't stop thinking about it. And a few months later, I came to Christ. See, we think if I don't lead them to Christ right then and there, it's a failure. But God says, no, it's a seed planted. God is doing a great work of saving in this world. And here's the blessed thing. He invites us to be a part of it. He says, come be a part of it. I want to use you in this person's life because God uses secondary means oftentimes to accomplish his purposes. He says, you want to, you want to experience something great? Come here. I'm going to put this person in your day today. And they're going to be obstinate and antagonistic. And they're going to challenge you. And, and, but I'm going to save them, and I want you to have a part in this. You'll love it. I don't know about you, but that stirs something in me. Like, I want to have a part in people's salvation. And if all I have to do is plant seeds, tell the truth as far as they'll let me, and it's God's work, I'm in. And that's what Peter calls us to you, too. Are you in? It's a glorious thing God's called us to. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you're doing this great work of salvation in the world, and many times we doubt it because we do not see uh, the work that you're doing. It's been for ha perhaps for many of us years before someone came to Christ through our testimony. Or maybe in our own circle of acquaintances we haven't noticed it, but you are saving people all over the world and you invite us to be a part of it. I pray for each person here this morning that they would recognize this glorious call 
to prepare and to defend, to give an answer, to effectively share the truth, and that we would respond in faith even though we feel inadequate. But you've invited us, Lord, because you are doing the work. So I pray that we would respond in obedience, in faith, that you would use Grace Baptist Church in this community as every member gives themselves to this, and this community is transformed by the power of the witness. We know this is possible because of your word, because of the gospel, because of the Holy Spirit within us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.